Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I want to let our listeners know that we're also live on Facebook Live, Resiliency Within's um, Facebook page, if you want to see Katie Gillis and I in person. And I want to welcome, a, heart, a heartful welcome to Katie Gillis, another social worker, which I, I, I love to interview so many people, but because I'm a social worker, you know, Katie, I'm a little bit, I guess, yeah. even more attached, right? Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so Katie, I want to say I want to tell a little bit about you and then we'll get started. So Katie Gillis is a psychotherapist and author with a passion for working with survivors of relationship and family trauma and the LGBTQ plus community. I'm actually came across um, Katie because we both are bloggers for psychology today. And I was reading one of her her essays. I'm going, oh, I've got to get this lady on my show because you all need to hear more about her. So um, her work focuses on assisting survivors of domestic violence and family trauma. Her latest book um, is Breaking the Cycle, The Six Stages of Healing from Childhood Family Trauma. And she provides training on recognizing patterns of domestic violence and family trauma and, and really helping survivors move forward. So we're going to hear more from her and she's going to tell us about the six stages. I'm so we're going to be so curious about what they are and how they promote healing. But before we do that um, and make this warm welcome, Katie, today's a, a momentous day for you today because you received an award today. Can you I share did. that with my listeners? Yes, I received an award for my book. I just found out uh, maybe a couple hours before I came on to talk with you. And so I won. Um, it's the Firebird Book Award. And um, I won second place for mental health. I'm Super stoked. Yeah. Well, congratulations. And is this for this book, this most recent book that you that we're going to be talking about today? Yes, it's for Breaking the Cycle. All right. Yes. So I want people to know about this book. So tell us the entire name, because I'm hoping that people will go out and buy this book today. Okay. So it is Breaking the Cycle, The Six Stages of Healing from Childhood Family Trauma. And it is support and encouragement for what you are once powerless to change. And so what it is, is that the six stages of that I, I've seen in my practice of working with survivors and, and what they tend to go through like during the healing process. And it's available on Amazon. Great. So um, so let's start with some questions. I, I, I want to know a little bit more about the book, but why is learning about the foundations of our family history so important for healing? So our family, our trauma, our trauma history, whether it's our family or anything that happens in childhood, our foundational years really affect us forever, um, all through adulthood. And a lot of times people think, oh, okay, well, you know, this happened in childhood. It doesn't affect me anymore. Um, even if you think it doesn't, it does. And it's to varying degrees. I mean, you know, we're all different, of course, in our healing stages and in, in our, our life. Uh, but it, 
our, our years, our foundational years, and if we had trauma in them, they affect everything from our relationships, uh, relationships with each other, like friendships, romantic relationships, um, how we are maybe as parents or as friends or even as like coworkers, colleagues, everything. You know, I've had clients come in with have difficult relationships with supervisors. They have difficult uh, relationships with authority figures. And a lot of times it's like those um, that attachment trauma, that relational trauma that comes up. And so learning about that helps you kind of, you know, it doesn't take it away, but it almost gives you that, aha, uh-huh. okay, well, that makes sense. Um, and then once you know why, then it empowers you to really be able to kind of think of, okay, well, that's what it is. It's not just that I'm, you know, irritable all the time or that I can't get along with people or, you know, some people, some people maybe like that, but I think sometimes it shows us, you know, that there's something, there's something there, you know, there's something going on. It's almost as if we repeat patterns that were laid down when we were young. And then here we have, let's say, a supervisor. And all of a sudden we have these strong feelings Mm -hmm. and reactions. And we're going, whoa, where did that come from? Oh, yeah. He didn't or she didn't or they didn't deserve that reaction. And yet I've had that. Are those the kinds of things you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, and I always want to give the disclaimer, like, sometimes, you know, maybe you have a supervisor who's just kind of a jerk or kind of a mean person, like, and that's, and that's true and that's possible too, right? Very possible. So yeah. I'm in no way trying to say, oh, it's, you know, always, always your trauma. But a lot of times when you find that you're having kind of abnormal reactions to like everyday things, uh, you know, reactions to supervisors, reactions to coworkers that just seem kind of like over the top, then, you know, it's worth looking into, okay, do I seem to, you know, have these kind of, you know, things come up with this kind of personality type? Is it, or is it a, with authority figures? Or do I tend to always get into these patterns, like you said, these relational patterns with partners? So many of my clients come in and they're like, oh, I've met the one. And then three or four months later, oh, you know, they're a jerk or they're mean. And it's like, why do I keep getting into this, you know, this pattern? Why do I keep dating people that are this way? And then I get hurt again. And, and, you know, and I always want to say sometimes there, there are people that are mean, I'm not trying to discount that in any way, but it helps us see why it is that we're drawn to this kind of pattern and why we keep repeating it. Well, and I often think about it in the way that if we have undigested trauma, yep. and it is still inside of us, like you said, yep. we may not like that. know that, but then they play out in the way that you're describing. I like that undigested trauma. I've heard that yes. before. And I really like that. You're right. Because it's like it's it's still inside you. So yeah. so you you actually just kind of a, a answered the, the question I had. Why is it important that we learn about these past influences? So, But if we do learn about them, then it's possible for us to kind of rewire and how we are how we operationalize ourselves in the world so we that we don't have to be that reactive is that what you're saying yeah i i think a lot of times as people learn about themselves and they learn why they have certain reactions they can change some of it you know or the things that they want to change you know for things like patterns or you know reacting harshly to different situations i think that that absolutely empowers people to realize, okay, you know, I seem to, this seems to be my reaction or why am I so upset? You know, those days where you go home and like maybe a classmate or a coworker or a friend just is like rubbing you the wrong way. And it's always that person. It's maybe always things that they say, um, 
you know, it, it sometimes you, you come home and you kind of chew on it. And it sometimes it gives you the ability to self-reflect and, oh, okay, that reminds me of my mom used to do that or, or whatever. And, and sometimes that connection isn't as obvious. Sometimes people aren't really able to sit and say, oh, wow, this personality type reminds me of, of this personality type. So, sometimes you can, but a lot of times it's really just kind of the validation, like, yeah, this this is a trigger point for me. Um, this is a, I don't like being talked down to. I don't like being made fun of. Whatever it is, and I think that's the value of therapy. Uh, you know, yeah. sometimes we'll say, "Well, why should I go see a therapist for this?" Because I think you can untangle some mm -hmm. of those those factors that you may not have conscious awareness of mm -hmm. with a therapist who's who's helping you tease out some of these patterns that you have and maybe where they came from in that family of of origin trauma that we talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you know, gender differences and if there's differences uh, between, let's say, um, how healing looks for for men, women, maybe people that identify as non-binary, people of color. I mean, the LGBTQ plus community. Can you talk a little bit? Of, I know that's a big question. <laughs> can, you, can you tease that out a little bit? How, how might it look differently? Absolutely. So it is definitely, you know, of, of course, in the queer community, in the LGBT community, there is a lot of uh, abandonment trauma. And of course, you can apply that to, you know, a, a many other marginalized com com communities or even non-marginalized communities. You know, abandoned trauma is very serious for many people. But I find that with my clients, you know, there is a lot of of trauma that was based off of being abandoned just for who you are, just for who they are. And so that sends a very deep message and a very strong message. Like you are not valid for who you are. You are not worthy just because of who you are. And that is something that I notice a lot. Um, so for you know, for marginalized communities, they already have the minority stress. They already have, you know, societal stressors from, from biases and, and stereotypes in the, in the, um, and discrimination in the community. And, you know, the same thing for people of color, you know, there's already, you know, that minority stress, there's already that, um, you know, the, the stress that they're dealing with, with discrimination in society and things like that. So adding that, that relational trauma on top of that, it's really compounded trauma, you know, and it can really reinforce that. You know, I was just, I was wondering, you know, I'm a person that kind of keeps abreast of current affairs and, mm -hmm. and recently, you know, pretty well-known um, political figure said racism doesn't exist. And I, you know, talked to many of my friends of color, they were really quite distressed by having such a public platform to yeah. say something like that. And I, and I know that I've seen an, an amplification of fear from many people in different communities when you hear those kinds of comments. Can you can you make a make a comment about about what I just said and and how do you think we can help when that kind of thing is being, you know, kind of poured into the to the to society actually? I, I just don't understand, you know, when people say insert ism. You know, or insert phobia, homophobia, transphobia, racism. When someone says that doesn't exist, and that person who's speaking is not a member of that, even if they are a member of that community, and they say it, I, I kind of question it. But I just feel like when people say that, it's so they're just no, they're not aware. Um, however, that being said, you know, I'm kind of probably saying the things that we all kind of know, but um, that is because not only do people have the the trauma from the racism, the trauma from the discrimination and the trauma from, you know, any 
experiences that they've had in and all around that. But then now they're having it denied. So it's like right, so they're not seen. And then that's yes. what me. It's like you it's yes. almost like you have no value if you yes. think this because you're not being seen in the way that you're you're experiencing American society. Absolutely. So it's like not only have you had these these experiences that have, you know, that you've internalized, externalized, all these different things, but now I, as this person of power, you know, powerful politician, a powerful speaker, am going to now with one phrase, you know, deny. And of course, they're not denying it. I don't mean it like that. I mean, I mean, your trauma isn't denied is what I'm saying, but they are with their powerful words, casting you know, that blanket over your experience, pulling the curtain down over, you know, the experience that many people go through. And and I think that then what I'm, what I'm hearing you say as well is that when you've had, you know, family of origin trauma, and then you have societal trauma on top yes. of that, you know, it's kind of like the perfect storm. Yes. Uh, then, then what's, how, how is this affecting you as you negotiate your, your life? How may it heighten your fear response? Like, is that person looking at me strangely? I mean, mm-hmm. should I be worried? Should I get out of here? I mean, I think that there is an amplification of fear and worry right now in society. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, your book is so important because it also helps us with some of those foundational roots that maybe can quiet, mm-hmm. you know, our fear response and, you know, look at fear if we are really in danger, but also yes. see that not everyone has those kinds of views because sometimes I think it can be overly generalized that maybe every person like this has this view about me when that may not be true. Oh, absolutely. Trauma can really make our, you know, our smoke detector uh, go off. It's kind of, it's like an internalized, you know, smoke detector, a trauma detector. And if we lived in chaos and dysfunction, we're going, you know, our little, little smoke detector in the back of our head is going off when we see anything that is remotely like that, or we experience anything that's remotely like that. So having our, our trauma denied and having our experiences denied, absolutely. I mean, we're going to internalize that. Well, you know, one of the things, Katie, as I've been getting to know you, I know you're getting your PhD right now. You're writing for Psychology Today. You, This is your third book, right? Is that correct? Your third book? Yeah, yeah. my third. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and, and give the titles of your first two books? I know one has a very long title, so go ahead. So the first one is um, Invisible Bruises. It's how a better understanding of the patterns of domestic violence can help survivors navigate the legal system. I know it's a, a long, I always, I don't know why I come up with these long titles. I think Very long title. That's why I wanted you to say it and not me because I might have messed it up. <laughs> it's like the way I talk too. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm giving way more detail than the person asked for. I guess maybe that's how I write too. Um, and then the second one, uh, which was published the year later, um, it's called It's Not High Conflict, It's Post-Separation Abuse. And it's when abusers weaponize the legal system to instill uh, domestic violence. And, well, and I think it's so important. And I wanted to highlight those two books that are also something that people can, can they find these on Amazon as well, Katie? Yeah, yep, on Amazon. Yep. Yeah, because because I've seen where the legal system has been so difficult to, to maneuver. Yes. Because oftentimes the survivors are often made to feel like the victims. Well, didn't you do that? Weren't you mm-hmm. consensual? Well, how come you didn't leave, right? All those mm-hmm. questions. And you know, and I think that we both know, and I, I just kind of want to say it out loud that many times people don't leave because they know they're in the, the they're in the the most dangerous space when they leave. Yes. Yeah, leaving can be worse. Yes, and so mm-hmm. and because that's often a question when people haven't been educated mm-hmm. about, about this, which often, of course, is creating the family trauma that we're talking about 
today. Mm-hmm. So, um, so one of the things that I want to ask you um, that I often ask first, and I didn't because we started talking about this right away, is that, you know, what called you to do this work that makes you so passionate about it that you're writing, you're going to school, you're already a social worker, um, you've won awards today. What, what called you? What was it about your life story that, that called you to do this work? So it's interesting. I, I saw this meme the other day, and of course, I'm can't quote it directly. So, you know, but it's something like, you know, people who are in their glory days now, you don't know what they went through to get to them. And I'm very paraphrasing, sorry to the meme author, <laughs> I completely botched that. But um, I am absolutely a survivor of both domestic violence and family trauma. And, and that is what made me realize, like when I went through a situation with domestic violence, with post-separation abuse, with the legal system, with all of that, which kind of led to me writing my first two books, um, it really made me kind of sit down, like literally and figuratively and be like, okay, whoa, what's going on? And not in the victim blaming way. I'm not saying in any way that it was my fault or anything like that, but it was like, Katie, what is going on? Why, what is going on that you're like getting in these relational patterns? What, what caused you to ignore these like blatant scarlet red flags? Um, What's going on? And so, you know, that along with a lot of my clinical work, I was, you know, able to really look at, you know, family trauma. What, what is it that, what was my relationship like with my parents? What did I survive? What kind of things did I go through? And seeing those patterns and how they manifest and how they repeat and how so many clients and so many people have that, that same, you know, pattern manifestation, the same circular, you know, the a cycle behavior rather. And so that is, that is what got me into it. My first book was really just because it was during the pandemic and it was during, it was in 2020 and like so many of us, my practice moved online. And so I was doing therapy online with, and so many of my clients were uh, domestic violence survivors. And I would be like writing out like tips and, and, and like homework assignments, you know, for them. And so it became kind of like a, I had so many of them. I had like almost like a manuscript. (laughs) I was like, well, let's, let's kind of, let's make it into a book. (laughs) Yeah. And so I kind of threw that together. And then, um, you know, and then a lot of same thing with this, the second one, it was a lot of I wrote the book that I could have needed when I went through that situation, like, you know, what kind of tips to doc, to doc tips of what to document for court, um, you know, how to, to breathe when you're on the stand and being like questioned and, and just things like that, that I knew survivors needed. And so because yeah. I think I, what I love about what you did is because having, you know, worked in my professional life with many um, survivors is that the legal system can be another trauma. Oh, absolutely. It's so re-traumatizing. Yes, it's absolutely. so re-traumatizing. And mm-hmm. so ways to maneuver that system, mm-hmm. I can't say enough how important that is. And so if any of our listeners are negotiating this in their lives right now or know someone that does, I really encourage mm-hmm. you to pick up these books because obviously when you have someone who's been through it, the tips mm-hmm. have a different to me kind of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's different to think. Oh, I see this from afar. Then, oh my goodness, I live yep. this, and yep. this is gonna, this is going to help me. Oh, so. absolutely. Yeah, like the breathing techniques that I talk about on the stand. Like I've used that. I've sat on the stand and had to use that. You know, I, I get it. And and so I think this is kind of like you know you're, you're we've already been talking about this, but I want to say if if you want to say anything more about the common ways that you see family trauma manifesting in adulthood, because you know, and I, this is kind of a an additional question, and that is. 
here this happened to you, right? Mm -hmm. The family trauma and whatever's happened to you in your life. And yet what you've done is you've written books about it. You're a therapist. Mm -hmm. You're you're writing about how to be in a different way. I mean, and you know, we talk often about the phoenix, yeah. you know, rising from the the tragedies or the stresses that we've had in our lives. And so we know that that's one trajectory. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, it's not the only trajectory, but there's, you might have to go through the kind of the healing mm -hmm. of the family trauma to get to the point where, you know, it's the, we call it what post-traumatic growth. Oh, so absolutely. anyway, so I know I asked a lot of things in there, but so your comments about anything that I just said, Katie. <laughs> so I, I do like to say I'm very open about my, you know, my own healing. And I, and I do in my book, I kind of, in my introduction, I talk about, you know, hey, I, I went through it. You know, I, I did the, you know, struggling, you know, with relationship after relationship, um, you know, emotional eating, you know, traumatic eating, all, all of those things that I did, um, my at attempts and failures with a therapist in college. I did all of that. I definitely, I struggled. I would not be here, you know, in undergrad, I was a completely different person. You know, in high school, it's a completely different person. Of course, I was young and I was a child, but I was, you know, definitely not the level of insight. And I've done a lot of work on myself. However, I always like to say that, you know, I am in a position of privilege. You know, I am educated. You know, I'm white. I am someone who is articulate. I, I do have a lot of privilege in our society. So when I talk, you know, my privileges, even though I am part of the queer community, even though I am a trauma survivor, I do have, you know, of course, those marginalizations. But I am someone who you know, when I, when I talk, people listen, or, or maybe I think they do and they're just humoring me, but I talk, people, people listen, I have a platform, I have the ability to write and to articulate my thoughts. And that does give me some privilege. So not only am I a survivor, and have I gone through like a lot of the things that have led me here, but I do like to recognize like I am, you know, lucky and, and privileged in that way and fortunate. And I definitely do not, you know, think that that is in any way you know, anything that I should downplay. And so, I mean, I, I always think, you know, in another, in another world, you know, maybe because we, we could have, you know, everyone has had their story, you know, the people who haven't written books and maybe they, their story is 10 times, you know, worse than mine and, but they don't have that platform and, and stuff like that. So. Well, and I think that, you know, in my experience, there's many people that may not be as public as you are, or I am, yeah. but yet they have amazing lives that they exactly. continue yeah. that, that, that wisdom that comes out of their suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, many of our community mental health clinics that have peer support, for example, mm -hmm. I see mm -hmm. that oftentimes the most powerful supporter is not necessarily someone that has the education that you and I have, mm -hmm. but someone who has the lived experience that that could yeah. be a degree in and of itself. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think, you know, and this is what I think what social workers tend to do, that we acknowledge that both exist. Yes. That, and one's not necessarily superior than the other. They're just different, but sometimes they're needed together in order to, you know, manifest as much healing that can be possible. And so, you know, one of the things I want to talk to you about are some of the ways that people heal. But there's another question. Well, do you think that healing ever stops? Do you mm -hmm. think it's ever, is it, is it an ED or is it an ing? <laughs> I guess I should say, is it healing from it or is it healed? Uh, so I like it as an ing. Uh, my The final stage I always call it is nurturing. Um, some people, you know, have referred to final stages kind of as like a, you know, 
you know, a maintenance, I guess, for lack of a, another word, but nurturing is something I like, um, healing. I feel like we get to a point where we can have more appropriate reactions to triggers, but it doesn't mean that we're never going to be triggered or never going to be affected or never going to have days where, where the stuff comes up. Uh, maybe well, it's, I, I have to share a personal experience. <laughs> so I was watching Ted Lasso. It's really, I love, yes. <laughs> Um, I love stories. The third season, and I, the character Rebecca, who, Mm -hmm. um, and just for those who haven't seen it, Rebecca is this very, has a lot of money. She has uh, gotten a hold of her ex-husband's beloved football team in England. Of course, you know, they, it's football in England. It's soccer for, for the Americans. And uh, she wants revenge. She wants, she just wants revenge. And so she hires this very inexperienced coach, which is Ted Lasso, who is transformative um, for everyone that he runs into. But also you see each person's journey. And, and, and so to kind of cut, cut to the chase, I call it the Rebecca effect. This is her name. She goes through a lot and she's about to have to um, present something to a number of men who also own teams who've been really um, caused macro and microaggressions, often comment yeah. on the way she looks, blah, 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 yeah. course, even her husband. And so there's this moment, and this kind of fits into what we're talking about. I just kind of came to me where she looks in the mirror and she sees her younger self, her child self that mm-hmm. had its own you know, element of trauma and mm-hmm. she roars. And the little girl that she sees in the mirror that's her roars as well. And yeah. so at that moment, there is this empowerment. So she goes into that room and, um, and her best friend um, texts her and says, remember that all those men were little boys at one time. And so she looks at, she looks at, at the, at the, them and she sees them all as little boys and gives the most powerful, amazing speech. But she also looks at her ex-husband and tells a story of his trauma when he was a childhood with such compassion where the revenge transformed. And when no. he came towards her to say like, oh, let's get back together. She said, no. Yep. And she had that boundary, but it was because there was healing that happened to her yep. healing. And yes. so I just, I, I had to just add that. So I call that the Rebecca effect that is possible for all of us. So, so in any event, it is almost time, Katie, I can't believe it's for us to take our break. So before we go to break, please say the name of your latest book again, that we're going to talk about in more detail when we come back from the, the break, go ahead, say the name. All right. It is Breaking the Cycle, the Six Stages of Healing from Childhood Family Trauma. And and what award did you just win today? Oh. Did you find out? I'm going to ask you again because I think we need to announce it loudly. I won the Firebird Book Awards. Uh, the Firebird Book Award, I won second place for the mental health category. I'm well, super and sick. as we go into the break, I want to remind my audience, I often say, Um, I often ask this question, Katie, on my show, and that is, what else is true? And so with Mm -hmm. the trauma that you described in your own life, I can also say what else is true to you. And you've already talked about what else is true. Mm -hmm. Some of the good works that you're doing and the educational trajectory that you've been on your journey in order to be able to help other people heal. So anyway, hats off to you. And we're going to be back in just a couple minutes after we hear from our sponsor, which is the Trauma Resource Institute, the nonprofit that I helped to co-found. And they are lovely to sponsor us. 
And we're going to hear a little message about them during the break. And we'll be back in just a couple minutes. And we are going to hear more from Katie Gillis. And we're going to hear about what those stages are. Because I'm really, those are those are important for us all to know about. And of course, we want them to go out and buy your book. All right, we'll be back in just a, in just a, a few minutes. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with um, psychotherapist Katie Gillis. We're talking about her latest book, Breaking the Cycle, The Six Stages of Healing from Childhood Family Trauma. And we're going to do a deeper dive into the six stages right now. We've been talking about the foundations of, of family trauma in our first half. So, so Katie, can you tell us more about what are these six stages and let us know a little bit about it? Because, of course, you and I both believe healing is possible. But yes. we may have some listeners out there saying, I don't know. Oh, Katie, I don't know if I ever heal from what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I and I definitely want to validate that because there are so many people that are thinking that right now. There's some people who have thought that, who will think that. And, then, and that's very valid to be in that position. And I always want to tell people that it's not like you just, oh, let me read this book and I'm going to check off all six boxes and then I'm going to be done. It's not like that. It's not like you you study for the quiz you study for the final exam and you pass the class. It's not like that. Um, healing is definitely something that, you know, some people may stay in stage one for 
for, for years and years. Some people may, you know, get halfway through and then kind of go back. Uh, so these stages are really just, you know, periods of awareness and as they increase. So the first stage so they is more fluid. So rather than being like, like yes, thank logical. You for, yes. Yeah, fluid. absolutely. It's, All it's right. not like you cross a barrier into, you know, I always, I always would get upset when people would talk the stages of grief is like, oh, well, your anger, and then you move to something else. Yeah, like, no, no, no. All mm -hmm. those, all those emotions can come at any time. It's more like oh, a absolutely. spiral, right? Yeah. So okay, we'll talk about what you describe as stage one. So for stage one is what I refer to as pre-awareness. And this is this is what I call like before we know that there's anything abnormal about our family. A lot of times for most of us, it's childhood. I've had clients say, I knew my family was dysfunctional the day I was born. And I validate that. I mean, <laughs> I get it. There's some people who don't realize until they're in their 20s. I think for me, I was probably high school. I had some awareness, but it was unsafe for me to, to really be aware. So I was in a lot of denial. So may maybe after college, I mean, it really depends on the person. And kind of like you said, you, you know, you brought up the stages of grief. It is, it is different for each person. Some people will never have, you know, pre-awareness. Some people like they, as soon as they were aware of their surroundings, they knew it was dysfunctional and unhealthy. And, and I, and I validate that, you know, there's no right or wrong way to, to experience it. But pre-awareness is like, we're just reacting to our normal. You know, whether we grow up with, you know, two moms, a mom and a dad raised by grandma, whatever, you know, and, and grandma drank or uncle, you know, uncle Frank came home and he, he was, you know, bringing different people home every night. A child doesn't know that their environment is abnormal until they have something to compare it to. So that's just your normal. Um, or, so, or, or, or also they may not know it until someone says, you know, I don't think that's right. Yeah. But you're growing. It may mm -hmm. be someone else coming into their life that sees it in a way that validates that what mm -hmm. you're seeing is real. Because oftentimes, don't you think that in that pre-awareness pre stage that sometimes you know something's off, but you just can't articulate because you haven't had anything to compare it to or no one said Oh no, you know, your uncle's not supposed to touch you in that way. Yes, absolutely. And right? that's actually I use that exact pretty much similar to that exact phrase of like something feels off but you don't know what yet. And it's something like that. Like maybe no one's ever told, you know, the little, because of course a little, a little child doesn't know that it's not okay to be touched that way. It's not okay to be hit. It's not okay to be yelled at in that way. Uh, they don't know that. They just know this is, I wake up, I go to sleep. This is what I do. You know, so uncovering is the second step. And that's when you start to like really look in deep and be like, huh, something's off. And, there's there is some stuff there, um, unco uncovering. Sometimes the this stage is hard because we want to stay in denial. You know, it's almost a defense mechanism to stay in denial because to come out and to really look at what happened is scary, and it's painful. Well, and we think that when we say denial, sometimes I use the word. For some reason, we still have to protect ourselves from the. I like that better. Yeah, yeah, of what we experienced in life, and mm -hmm. and even though in some ways it makes no sense not to say no, that was wrong. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, but wait a second, you know, maybe, and but this is part of it. Do you think, Katie? I'd love your thought about it. Well, maybe I was provocative, and that's why that happened. Absolutely, and those are common feelings that come up. Or like, what did? what did I do? Or maybe it was me. I use a story in my book about being a little child begging my mom 
not to go back to see the family therapist because I was convinced that the therapist would be able to see that I was the problem. And so I could, I know. So like as a (laughs) child and so many children have, or people who adults have come in and, and told people of all ages telling me, well, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And I, I was maybe eight. I don't know. And, and, and I described this scene of like being like, well, I can, I can fool my parents, but I'm not going to fool a professional. A professional is going to be able to see I'm the problem. And in my book, I'm like, never is an eight-year-old the problem. Um, never. Katie, you were a very smart eight-year-old. <laughs> never, it's never your fault. Like, you knew the therapist could know more than your parents about the problem. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to fool this professional. This professional is going to know it's me, you know? And, and so that's like a a huge part of that stage of like, you know, I'm the problem. It's me. I'm provocative. I'm, I'm asking for it. It's how I'm dressing. It's how I'm acting. I'm mouthy. Um, that absolutely. So I like, and so that's part of like swallowing the untruths. That, yes. that sometimes are projected on us, right? Yes. But sometimes we create, like you created that the whatever that you created about the therapist, right? Mm-hmm. That children create all sorts of things and they swallow mm-hmm. that and they don't have anybody to say, oh, I don't think that's true though. Mm-hmm. You couldn't cause that, you know? Mm-hmm. And because children do all sorts of things like, oh, I caused the fire because I didn't turn off the stove. Yes. Right? I, I, you know, this happened. I can remember a little a little person um, when I was working with a support group um, when the baby was stillborn and the little boy was in the backyard with a shovel digging up the backyard. He wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. All he heard was the adults talking about, well, they buried the baby. So he thought it was his job to try to find the baby that was buried. I mean, that's when, isn't that the the innocence of a child? but, But I think it's, it's again, those kinds of things that sometimes parents and other adults don't understand that children may have their own story that they created mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with reality. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely, and children like naturally will internalize blame. You know, if a parent leaves, if a parent mm-hmm. is angry, it's me, it's something and I've so, done. And so this is happening then when they're going from this pre-awareness to awareness in the second stage. So it goes in from, pre, yeah, from pre-awareness to uncovering, you start to you know, no longer are your parents just status quo. No longer is it just, oh, they're normal and they're my heroes kind of thing. Um, It's like you kind of have like a foot in both worlds where you're like, this was my normal, but something seems off with this. You know, something, something wasn't okay with that. And so you're almost coming into like the second stage of awareness, the second stage of, uh, of being able to acknowledge that there were things that were, that were dysfunctional. And then the third stage is what I call digging in. So that's, so I say that so you could kind of see almost like if, if you picture almost like a, I don't know, a mountain <laughs> with a bunch of ridges, you know, um, you know, like there's pre-awareness and you keep climbing the mountain and you're in uncovering and you keep climbing the mountain and now you're in digging in. Digging in is when you, you, you're digging, um, you know, you're, you're digging in, you know, what, what, what is it that happened and how often did, you know, my, my uncle say those things or how often did grandma come home drunk? And she did come home drunk. That really happened. And she yelled or whatever it is, like allowing yourself to really say that happened. And that was traumatic. Well, and in the digging in also, there can be other pre-awarenesses that come mm-hmm. to your knowledge so that you become aware. This is what yep. the, the fluidity of your model, right? Cause that makes mm-hmm. sense. 
Because mm-hmm. I'm digging in, I'm going, oh, so those times that I was hungry is because grandma was drunk and she didn't feed the yes. kids. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. It wasn't. And, she, yeah. Okay. No. I get, I get it. And because, because of the fluidity of the stages, people can also kind of, you know, slip back in because it's not like, okay, I'm, I'm standing on one coin. I can't be standing on the other coin. It's kind of, you know, it's like this fluid bubble that's all happening at the same time. So sometimes even though you're like, okay, I didn't, I didn't eat because grandma, you know, came home drunk and forgot to feed us. But sometimes people slide back into, well, I was old enough and I could have just thrown together a thing of mac and cheese. They kind of can have like two at the same time. I see that a lot that many people are, you know, they're, they're digging in, but then they, those old excuses and those old patterns, like they still come up. Well, and I think that when you say that, I'm reminded of a client that, you know, she was saying that about herself. um, And then she had a child. Yes. And then she was doing that, thinking that she should have known that when she was four. I mm-hmm. said, well, what about your daughter when she was four? She's four, right? Would she? And she goes, oh, because she wasn't looking at herself mm-hmm. developmentally as a four-year-old. Yes. She was looking at them with her adult eyes saying, oh, I should have known better. And that's, yes. when you see that, is that something that isn't one of your stages, this kind of. I see it a lot. The developmental I- age. I do. And I see it a lot with people who were parentified or people who are surrogate spouses, um, because you had to be emotionally ad- advanced, you know, to take care be the emotional caregiver of a parent. And so you looking back, you remember being, you know, that surrogate spouse, that that emotional caregiver. Looking back, you didn't you didn't feel four. You didn't feel 14. You felt maybe 24. Now, as an adult, like me at 37, I can look back and say, 14 was 14. Even though I felt 24, I was in no way 24. But it's like looking back now I can see it. But in the but in the moment you feel you don't realize because you don't really get to, you know, to be the kid. They weren't the four-year-old, you know, four-year-old that's dealing. Yeah. So these are the insights that come in into the digging in Mm -hmm. stage. So what about the next stage? So the next one I call healing. And that is, I know, a very big umbrella term. Healing means for different for many people. Healing means drawing conclusions. It means increasing self-awareness of behavior patterns and change and working to change those patterns. And that means many different things to many people. Usually when people come in to therapy, or you know, me in particular, um, they come in, you know, in that healing stage. Or in the digging in stage, you know, they're like, oh, definitely need to work through some family stuff, you know, that that's what they seek, you know, me out for, or usually therapists for, in my experience, it's that this is my pattern, this is stuff I've been going through, this is me, help me (laughs) change this, help me work through this, I know it's there, and I know, maybe they don't, they can't spell it out, but they know that they have these, maybe these dysfunctional patterns, or they know that the things aren't working, maybe they've had their fifth or sixth failed relationship. Maybe they're not getting along with their own is, kids. Is healing a place too that you may first encounter going to therapy? Or can you, you could go into therapy at any times of these stages. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can go into therapy. I just feel like the thing that drives people to therapy, like for example, to use in contrast, like the pre-awareness stage, few people would seek out a therapist if you know, I'm using air quotes here, like nothing's wrong. Um, however, if something seems off, but you don't know what, to use a quote from my my second stage, 
many people, okay, something seems off. You know, I just don't feel happy. That's when you get the complaints of like, um, oh, I don't feel happy. I just feel depressed. You know, I have a lot of anxiety. I'm not sleeping. That's kind of the, you know, the uncovering because the people haven't necessarily drawn the connection. Like, oh, well, I, I can't fall asleep at night because I used to hear my parents fighting loudly every night. And so I'm in that heightened state of hypervigilance. That's when you start to develop that, you know, the connections between what happened and what is going on for you now. And that's like, so my, my fifth stage, fifth stage, I call understanding. That's when that starts to happen. Like when you're able to, like, I'm, I always use myself as an example, the, the, the falling asleep at night, I struggle with, you know, or clients, I've had a lot of clients with that problem. You can't sleep, wake up in the middle of the night, you can't sleep. Being able to draw the connection and the meaning. Well, my, I'm, why am I hyper aroused? at night? Why am I hyper aroused when I'm, you know, arguing with my partner? Why is my heart beating and racing? And I feel like the world is ending, you know, being able to kind of make that, that connection. So you also, um, talk about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So can you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So forgiveness, I talk about in, I have one section where I say, you know, forgiveness, like it's one approach to healing. I like to look at, and I, there's many, you know, clinicians before me who have, who've, you know, come up with this, so I'm not, you know, coining this, but um, mourning, you know, like, have you mourned? Because a lot of times people are, you know, survivors are told, oh, you need to forgive, you need to forgive. There are some survivors that forgive naturally, and I think that that's great if that's a part of your journey. That is never anything that me as the clinician or me as another survivor would tell someone, oh, you need to forgive. Um, because it is not like that. It's not like you just decide one day, all right, that's what I'm going to do is I'm going to forgive. It doesn't work like that. And what ends up happening is people think that they've forgiven only to return to therapy months or even years later because their symptoms are bad because they thought they forgave when really they were just kind of pushing themselves back into denial. Well, I think that goes to when people say those kinds of things, like you should do something. Yes, you should. I mean, forgiveness has to be very organic if it, if it mm -hmm. happens at all. And I've come to believe that there could be some acts that people can understand, but they don't forgive. Yep. And that's yes. kind of like the horrors that happen to children, for example, yes. when children are killed or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because I think that, does that mean everything is forgivable? And I don't know if, if that's true. I don't know. What do you think about what I just said? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I'll i be the first one to always say, you know, there are some things that, that happen to people that are unforgivable and that is okay and needs to be validated. Um, the One of the first things I mentioned in my book is that my book is not about blame. And it's not about casting blame. It's about moving forward. However, at the same time, there are situations where blame needs to be assigned. And that is fully okay. Like, I am never, ever going to be the one to say to someone, oh, you can't blame. You just have to move forward. Absolutely not. Um, it is something that is so personal, you know, and telling someone that they can't blame or telling someone that they have to forgive. We as a society tend to do that, you know, speaking of like we were talking about earlier about like marginalized people, people, right. you know, women are, or people of faith, um, queer people, they people of color tend to be told by society, you need to move on, you need to forgive, you need to, you know, let bygones be bygones, forgive and forget. And that is that again, that same, you know, I'm going to put the put the power on you as the survivor to forgive. Like now the ball's back in your court. You have to right. forgive. Yeah. Right. And if you haven't gone through the morning and all the other things that you're talking mm -hmm. about, 
that can be almost impossible to do. So absolutely talk about the very last stage. So what's the very last stage? The last one is nurturing. And it's like go, going back to like, you know, is it the ED or the ING? Nurturing is it's the taking care of yourself. Think of like if you have a skiing accident and you, and you break, you know, a knee, it is something that five, 10, 15 years later, you know, some people may never notice it. And, and that's okay. That's their healing journey. Some people may notice it every winter. Some people may notice it when it rains. Some people may reactivate it when they're trying to, to, to jog. Um, you will have those moments where your traumas are like reactivated. Now it's going to be different levels for each of us, different triggers for each of us, but just being aware that it can happen, being aware that it might happen, being, you know, knowing yourself, knowing, Hey, there's certain holidays that bother me. There's certain days that bother me. Maybe certain um, songs. You know, I have some people who can't be in a, a closed space, like it being an elevator, things like that. Like knowing yourself and not trying to be in denial by saying, "Well, I can, I can go to an elevator. It's fine. I should be bigger than that." By being able to say, "No, this is a thing for me, and it's okay." So I'm going to empower myself by taking the stairs, and that's totally okay. It doesn't mean that I'm unhealed. Doesn't mean I'm weak or anything like that. So I, you know, the other question I have for you is that, you know, you look at these, we've looked at these six stages and so we can go in and out of them depending on where we are. There's a lot of different kinds of therapists. I'm trained yes. in many different modalities. So for people that are listening, do you have a particular recommendation on the kind of therapist that they might want to look at if they want to start this healing journey? I like that. I, um, I believe, you know, that it is really Often, you know, of course, there are many modalities, like you said, that are so good for trauma. Um, the relationship between the therapist and, and the client is has been shown to be more beneficial for, for healing than whether they use trauma modality A versus B versus C. Um, so that being said, look for someone who you feel connected with. Look for someone who you feel like you could tell. Like, I, I mean, my my therapist, I can tell her, you know, my my innermost thoughts that I almost like always think to myself and I know that she's like a gets it because she probably is like oh I've been there and b she's not judging me and I've had therapists before that were like hmm you know and you just know you know and sometimes someone you can have that treat. sense that they're yeah. judging you and they're not embracing you in a space of, of yeah kind of like, it's kind of unconditional regard that they have for you yeah and they can hold whatever you have to tell them. I think, you know, I know it was Dr. Scott Miller many years ago wrote, wrote an amazing book and talked about all these different therapeutic models and said, what was the key factor in how they worked is yes. what you just said, is yep. whether people felt that they could engage and felt trust and confidence yep. in that person. Because when we talk about family systems, we're talking about a rupture that happened. Yes. And yes. so what you're doing is you're actually healing an attachment rupture Mm -hmm. that happened in your childhood with the person who's helping you through it. And mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a therapist. Sometimes it can be oh, yeah. a wise person in your mm -hmm. family. It can be a teacher. It can be an aunt. I can't mm -hmm. tell you how many people have told me there was a teacher. Yes, a teacher. Yeah. Teachers, right? The teacher that saw me. But I, but you know, we're both therapists, obviously. So we do have something. We've, we've chosen this because we know that it can help people to, um, to really maneuver themselves through these different, um, you know, struggles that they've had in their life. So um, I have another question. So what can people do to support loved ones who've had family of origin trauma, even if they do not understand the experience? So there's a couple things. I, 
I first want to say, um, you know, number one, you have to have boundaries. And I want to say that that's usually the third tip I give, but I don't ever want to forget this one because it's so important. So, um, but boundaries are like, know that you cannot and should not be someone's everything. Know that it's okay to say, you know, maybe it's time for you to see someone and I'll support you through that. Just know that that's okay. You know, take care of yourself too. However, um, you know, the first couple things I usually mention to clients are, you know, or to, um, I'm sorry, family members who, who are partners who, who come in to kind of learn more are kind of a variation or combination of, you know, just knowing that they're going to make connections to you that might not make sense. For example, you not texting them back and them freaking out. To someone who doesn't have rela relational trauma, they might be like, wow, this person's being really dramatic. Um, just knowing that there's a connection in their mind that they've made and they're not doing it just to bother you. You know, that that anxiety is real. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. And then just listening. You know, don't try to assume, you know, a lot of times people think that survivors don't want to talk about their story. You know, they, they think that so they're scared to bring it up. And a lot of my clients will tell me, I would love to tell my partner what I experienced, but, you know, he, he clams up and doesn't want to talk about it or, or you know, they change the subject. That is something that is really crucial. Like just knowing, you know, how your partner or how your loved one likes to be supported. Don't try try to just sometimes I see partners or friends just, you know, oh, this person is talking about their trauma. I'm just going to give them a hug. You know, if, if the person wants a hug, that's fine. But don't do it in a way that's like, hey, I'm getting you to do this just to kind of get you to stop talking. Um, people can tell when they're, you know, making the other yeah. person feel like Katie, they don't want to. Kitty, you know, you have such wisdom. We only have a couple minutes left. It's gone by so fast interviewing you. Um, is there any like parting thought that you can kind of do in a minute or less about um, what you'd like to leave the audience with? Yes, I want to say no trauma is too big or too small to heal or to start working through and acknowledging. Katie, thank you so much for your wisdom. For, so, you know, for me, because I'm a lot older than you, you have so much wisdom as a young person. And Thank I hope you. everyone goes out and buys your book. Say the name of the book one more time. Breaking the Cycle. Yeah. Breaking the Cycle, the Six Stages of Healing from Childhood Family Trauma. And if people want to get a hold of you, can you say your website? Yes. So my name is difficult to spell. Um, you can thank my mom for that. It's www. And it's my full legal name, K-A-Y-T-L-Y-N, Caitlin. Gillis, G-I-L-L-I-S, L-C-S-W.com. So it's Caitlin Gillis, L-C-S-W.com. Great. And so, Katie, again, thank you so much for being on the show. And I just want to say to my listeners, I think Katie is a wonderful example of that question that she certainly answered many times, what else is true, and the different things that she is doing. And I know there's going to be many more things she will do in her life to promote healing and goodness in the world. Um, and so until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing off for Resiliency Within. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.
Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.